God who is sovereign over every molecule in the universe, the God who formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into him life, the God who meant the mistreatment of Joseph by his brothers to accomplish their rescue, the God who used the very Pharaoh who oppressed the Hebrew children to raise Moses and then used Moses to accomplish their deliverance from that oppression, the God who is not served by human hands as though he needed anything, for he gives to all life and breath and everything else, that God, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and Joshua and Elijah and Gideon and Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego is in this room right now. My name is Sam Crabtree. I'm executive minister at Bethlehem Baptist Church. My assignment is to introduce the speaker for tonight's opening session. Actually, speaking to you tonight is God's spirit. And the instrument is John Piper. I'm praying that John will again be faithful to the God who is faithful. Perhaps you're already acquainted with John, have read about him, the host of this conference, in your conference brochure or in the flyleaf of his books or on our website. Many of you have read his books or heard him preach, but some of you may not be familiar with John Piper. What do others say about him? Here are two quotes. James Montgomery Boyce said before he died, No contemporary author of whom I'm aware understands and articulates the glorious depths of God's character like John Piper does. He's a man who has learned to love God by enjoying him deeply. R.C. Sproul added, John Piper shows us the source, the goal, and the end of all pleasures. It might be helpful to some in this room if an introduction could be added by one who meets regularly with him every week when we're both in town, live across the back fence from him. We've talked late into the night about our marriages and our children and our ministry and our health. We've wept together and probed the scriptures together, pondered together the ambiguities of this life and banged our bodies together on the basketball court and prayed by the bedside of dying saints and newborn infants. And here's what I've observed. By the mercy of the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, John is intentionally and intensely Godward. The priorities that you'll see here tonight are the same you'll see if you walk home with him over the 11th Avenue Bridge. He believes that we are starving for the greatness of God, and he himself is desperate for God. He'd rather die than distract you from God. And I can tell you that he immerses himself in the word, he buffets his body, he practices what he preaches. He's the kind of fiercely intense listener that asks penetrating questions. And I believe God's raised him up for a key moment in our collective history. He's not here to be seen, but to help you see someone else. But these are things about John Piper. Rather, prepare yourselves now for an encounter with God. Let's begin with another word of prayer. Shall we? Oh, Father in heaven, my longing is high and deep. 
beyond what I can do in my strength. And so it is so good and fitting to begin on our faces in worship saying, thank you for grace. Thank you for predestining us and calling us and justifying us and assuring us of glory. Thank you for assembling us and thank you for the colors of our skin and the cultures of our homes and churches. And now, Lord, guard us from the devil and from sin and from sabotage and any who is sick heal and come and give us ears to hear just read it again this morning he who has ears to hear let him hear to him who has will more be given and from him who thinks that he has even what he has will be taken away. Lord, make us good soil now with ears. In Jesus' name I ask it. Amen. My task tonight is to answer the question, why this theme? Namely, and it was a very carefully crafted theme, namely, the sovereignty of God and the soul dynamic, God-centered thinking, and the black experience in America, past and future. And if God would give me grace to light a fire in you, that would forge a link between the sovereignty of God and God-centered thinking on the one side and the soul dynamic and the black experience in America on the other side because I believe there is an explosively powerful coming together of these things that I want to be a part of and I want to advance. Now, from the very outset, the words, the terms are intention. I know this. I feel this. I see this. The metals that I want to forge are so different. Some in this room probably doubt that they can be forged into one Link. The soul dynamic. Let's take them. There's four of them. These terms. The soul dynamic points to a personal energy, a life, deeply felt suffering, human kinship, while the sovereignty of God beside it points to divine, objective power outside ourselves, imposing itself down from above, not up from within. The black experience in America points to 
the weight of history, tradition, suffering, passion, people, culture, warmth. The term God-centered thinking, in contrast, points to the burden of rationality, reflection, concepts, ideas. And so from the outset, the prospect of forging a link between the sovereignty of God and God-centered thinking on the one side and the soul dynamic and the black experience in America on the other side looks bleak, looks dim. But there is a powerful reason for why I am dreaming the dream of this conference. There's a powerful reason for why I feel hope that such a link is not only possible, but in profound ways, perhaps you've never thought about, is natural and crucial. And the reason is this. The vision of God's sovereignty and God-centered thinking, or the, the vision of it, let's put it this way, The vision of God's sovereignty and God-centered thinking that drives this conference now for 15 years is different than what most people usually have in mind, whether white or black, when they think of the term God-centeredness, sovereignty of God, Calvinism, Reformed theology. There's a difference. There's a difference, a very significant difference that I think virtually demands the link between the soul dynamic and black experience on the one side and the sovereignty of God and God-centered thinking on the other side. Here's the difference. And I speak from my own experience as one who's been trying for all these years to formulate an indigenous vision of the sovereignty of God that will work for me, for my church, and for those I speak to. But I know I'm speaking out of a tradition that is not unique to me. In fact, I loathe the thought of novelty. I love it when I can find echoes and roots to what I believe 300 years ago, or 500, or 1500. Nevertheless, I'll say it my way. And you find the tradition. Here's the difference between the lens through which I'm looking. This conference, hundreds of you, I believe, are looking at that tradition. Reformed theology, Calvinism, God-centeredness, supremacy of the glory of God. We're looking at it, I'm looking at it, through the lens of Christian hedonism. That is... The filter that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. That's the filter through which I see the Reformed tradition. God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in Him. Secondly, I'm looking at it through this tradition. I'm looking at it through the overwhelming experience of suffering and sin in this world. An experience, however, 
that does not drive us away from God, but toward God. And He says, as we are moving toward Him, to all of our enemies, you meant it for evil, but I meant it for good. That's the lens through which I'm looking at the Reformed tradition. A a lens of suffering and pain that does not drive you away from God. It drives you toward God who says to your enemies, I meant it for good. Thirdly, I see the sovereignty of God through the humanly impossible experience of the Apostle Paul whose wounds made him say, we are sorrowful yet always rejoicing. I call that a humanly impossible statement. Suffering yet always rejoicing. He carried in his body the marks of Jesus. He was being put to death, he said in 1 Corinthians 15, every day. Always rejoicing. Now I ask you, is there any biblical phrase better suited to express the essence of the soul dynamic and the triumphant spirit of black history in America than sorrowful yet always rejoicing? I don't know much, but the little I know, that sounds familiar. That sounds familiar to me. And if that's the lens through which you look at the Reformed tradition, it might take on different colors. And fourthly, these are all differences that just might make the forging thinkable. Fourthly, I see the sovereignty of God through the cross of Jesus where God's love stoops down to give us all that we can know and enjoy of God at the infinite cost of God's own human life. Now that's a difference from what most people feel whether they're thinkers or not, when they hear words like Calvinism or Reformed theology or sovereignty of God or God-centered thinking, this taste, this lens is different than what most people feel. And this is what I believe, what I pray will forge a link between the sovereignty of God and the soul dynamic, between God-centered thinking and the black experience. These are ways of looking at the sovereignty of God and the centrality of God and the supremacy of God and the so-called Reformed tradition and Calvinism that transpose the key of the music of God's sovereignty up into something that begins to sound a lot like a Negro spiritual or a freedom song or a dirge from the Underground Railroad or the lullaby for the babies after daddy's lynching 
or the misery and the joy of the Delta Blues. It may be that the music we make will be transposed into a a key, a strain, a theme, a sound, an angle that sounds so different to so many people, it will actually feel natural to forge the link. So here's my thesis. Here's my thesis for this conference. And then I'll give you some background for where it came from. Even though there are thousands of whites and thousands of blacks, who stumble over the theological systems of dead white men from Geneva and Northampton and Princeton. And even though there are thousands of whites and thousands of blacks who ridicule the God-rooted soul dynamic of the black experience in America, nevertheless, There is an untried vision to see the mountain streams of God's supremacy and sovereignty and centrality and glory flowing down from the Reformed tradition on the one side together with the soul dynamic and the black experience in America on the other side to make one single river that runs deep with life and hope and joy through the valley of pain and the valley of death, a river of love that causes all who drink not to make much of themselves and not to make much of their ethnicity, but to rejoice in making much of God forever. That's my thesis. My thesis is that such a thing has perhaps... Never been tried. I don't know. I don't know if it's ever been tried. I just feel in my bones God might be up to something here in terms of the bringing together of the so-called Reformed tradition seen through a new lens, especially for us whites, which I call Christian hedonism. You don't have to buy that term. And this other reality that I know so little about and want to know so much better, but smell the possibility of a linking that could be so explosive in our churches. So explosive in our culture beyond what anybody has ever dreamed. So let me tell you how I got to this point. Do some life history here and then we'll get to some Bible foundations before we're done. I grew up in Greenville, South Carolina, and was manifestly racist in my assumptions, attitudes, and actions as a child and a teenager. That is, is what I mean by that. I assumed the superiority of my race in almost every way without knowing or wanting to know anybody who was black, except Lucy, who came over on Saturdays to help my mother clean. I liked Lucy. 
And the whole structure of that relationship was demeaning. My attitude was not mainly my parents' fault. In fact, as I look back and think and pray and analyze, it was in many ways in spite of my parents that I was guilty of racism. It was the air we breathed in Greenville, South Carolina. And talking to a pastor the other day is still the air. And not just there. In 1963, I was born in 46, so I'm in high school now. In 1963, my home church voted on a Wednesday night not to allow blacks into the services. I remember the meeting. As I recall, my mother who, by the way, grew up in Pennsylvania and was not indigenous to South Carolina, was the one vote against that motion. My dad was on the road. He's always on the road. That December, so it passed. I remember the rationale. The only reason a black person wanted to come to this church is to stir up trouble. To stir up trouble is no reason to come to a church. So you pass the motion, made sense to everybody. That December, my sister was married in the church, and my mother invited Lucy and her whole clan. And they all came. This is her daughter's wedding. And as they walked in the front door, and you saw the face on the ushers who were charged with seating people, and they balked my mother. you got to understand, my, my mother's with Jesus now, but my mother had a long pointed nose, so like this one. And her eyes are blue, mine are brown, and they could be fiery. And she came over and she took Lucy and her husband and those kids and uh, however other men and relatives and walked them to their seat in the main sanctuary. And when I saw that, the seeds were sown. In fact, they'd been sown. It wasn't her fault. I was not her fault. (laughs) When I saw that, I knew the seeds were sown, that my racism was a dishonor to my mother and her God. I went to school in Illinois, Pasadena, California, West Germany, came to Minneapolis in 1974. Been here ever since, and it's been a mighty long journey. 180 degrees from the early 60s, at least from where I want to be. Where I was growing up across town from Jesse Jackson.
Greenville, South Carolina. His mother and my mother listened to the same radio station, WMUU. And he might have gone to a Christian school down there, but it wasn't done. And history might have been different. Several years ago, here at Bethlehem, 1995, we wrote six fresh initiatives at our church, one of which went like this. Against the rising spirit of indifference, alienation, and hostility in our land, we will embrace the supremacy of God's love to take new steps personally and corporately toward racial reconciliation. Today we'd use the word harmony, I think, because reconciliation sounds too punctiliar, like event instead of process and Relationship. Nevertheless, take it at its best face. And corporately toward racial reconciliation expressed visibly in our community and in our church. Close quote. And that has been a very significant, fresh initiative to guide much in our church. And we have, as you might guess, a long way to go. Six years ago, I was 50 years old, and a phone call came to my wife from Georgia. There's a little girl here. She's eight days old, said the social worker. I think she's for you. Now, that's a dynamite thing to say to a woman who has four sons and has always wanted a daughter. This little girl was black. And so Noel comes to me and she says with trembling, Phoebe's on the other line and says, there's a little girl. She's eight days old and her mom can't keep her. And she's promised to find a Christian home for her. She thinks she's for us. What do you think? (laughs) I had a different plan. At 50. A a post-soccer plan. Took me 10 days. 10 days of tears and soul-searching about the rest of my life. All the books I wanted to write and churches I wanted to plant, and afternoons I wanted free. And uh, God did what Noel had prayed for who knows how many years that he would do, and he changed my heart. There were 13 reasons, and I wrote them all down. I sat... This is the way I lead at Bethlehem. I lead with papers and reasons. So I sat Noel down at the kitchen table, and I said, uh, this is ten days after that phone call, and I said, I have a paper I want to read to you. (laughs) And we cried our way through that paper, which 
which had a little girl in our arms in eight weeks. That was big. Big not only because I was 50, although that was the biggest reason I felt. You may think it was the race thing was the biggest. That, that was big, but not the biggest. But then, then it was the race piece. I'm from South Carolina. My dad lives there. I've got stories already to tell about taking this little girl home. The letters I got already. And uh, God worked some miracles there, by the way. We've got a lot of miracle babies around Bethlehem. They're in the business of working miracles. You, you guys know, some of you way better than others, that all the challenge and the pain is in front of me, not behind me. I know that. And I don't have answers. I just have hopes and dreams and a great God. Last point in the preparation to get us to this night. Last summer, July, on a porch in Asheville, North Carolina, I was reading a book called Free at Last by this man over here, Carl Ellis, who keeps waving his hand and helping me. Helping me. Here's what, here's what happened on the porch, Carl. I was, I have in my mind this picture. I'm reading this book, subtitled, The Gospel in the African American Experience. We've got a hundred of them. You better go fast. They're all going to sell because of what I'm going to say right now. Um, and then we get some more. And As I was reading this book, it, it seemed like one of those little toy magnet sticks coming down on my life, and my life was about a, a thousand of those little iron filings all scattered around on the table. And this little thing starts coming down as I'm reading this book, and these little filings start shivering <laughs> like this. And then they all start turning, you know, how they turn. And then if you touch it, they all just <laughs> like this. That's what this book felt like to me, to 14 years of pastors' conferences and 30 years of reflection on the Reformed tradition in relationship to supposedly all of life. I felt in reading this book about the soul dynamic and the black experience in America that everything I had seen and savored of the sovereignty of God and the centrality of God and the supremacy of God was a preparation to be a part of this reality, Carl. That is, a rebuilding of God-centered, Christ-exalting, Bible-saturated, black, and I would add, though Carl didn't stress it at all, though implied it, if you have ears to hear, white, evangelical, culture, not primarily around color or primarily around ethnic identity, but primarily around a triumphant, sovereign, glorious, all-knowing, all-governing, crucified, suffering, living Christ. There are sentences in this book so many of them, I couldn't tell you 
that made me feel like Carl Ellis' vision for the rebuilding of a God-centered black culture was profoundly relevant for the rebuilding of a God-centered white American evangelicalism. That's the way I read the book. I don't know black culture. I'm not in it. I was reading for me. And then I discovered what I think might be a dream of what could be. For example, here's a sentence. Quote, White historians had sold us, us, the black community, he means. White historians had sold us a bill of goods by leaving black folks out. Black secularists sold us a bill of goods by leaving God out. Now, the reason that sentence cuts so deeply both ways, that is, white and black, is not primarily because it criticizes white historians as bad historians or it criticizes black secularists as bad theologians, which it does, but mainly because it makes us focus on that particular weakness in the black community which it had taken over straight from the dominant white culture. Namely, secular humanism in contradiction to the deeper, more authentic, God-soaked roots of black culture in America. And I would add, in contradiction to the deeper and more authentic, God-soaked roots of white evangelical culture, which we have lost also in America. And oh yes, let's just get, get the air here. I've been in this conversation long enough to know, and it hasn't been long, that there's a problem with everything I say to somebody. Just be thankful I'm not saying but and putting parentheses in more often than I do. You just, so, thank you. And I, I will need, I will need lots of grace, lots of grace before this conference is over. But here's one piece I hope I don't need. Oh yes, I say to answer your criticism. Oh yes. I know that the white reformed Puritan roots are contaminated with the poison of slaveholding like Jonathan Edwards and others. And I know the deeper roots of black culture are contaminated by African paganism. But if we are willing to cut each other some slack here and see the working of God's providence in the imperfections of our histories, then the axe of Carl Ellis falls not only against the modern black tree of Godlessness, but also the modern white tree of Godlessness. That's what I saw, that's what I heard in this book, On the Porch, in Asheville, North Carolina, last July. The trumpet that Carl Ellis was sounding in this book for the rebuilding of a God-centered African-American culture is really at root a call for something even bigger, deeper, namely the rebuilding of a God-centered Christianity, not Christianity-ism. So you don't know what that is? Get the book. You gotta create words. This is good. That's one of the best things that came out of tonight's supper. 
you got to go home and create some language. Almost all the language is worn out. So full of connotations, everybody's got connotations and things. Just create a language. We do this around Bethlehem all the time. It's always using hyphenated words because old nouns don't work and old adjectives are inadequate. You gotta do God exalting, God centered, justice pursuing, soul winning, missions mobilizing. You gotta create words. So create some words. He created Christianityism to distinguish what black culture is profoundly rejecting in many ways. And we say, oh, this is terrible. They should stop rejecting Christianity. And he knows that. So he says, maybe they're not. Got to create a word here. Got to help people. You got to help them make the distinctions between what you reject and what you don't reject. You feel the two-edged sword of Carl Ellis in this book again in a sentence like this. Now keep in mind, on the, I'm on the porch, Asheville, North Carolina. Haven't got any speaker plan for this conference. Just dreaming a dream. Groping around. What is this in my soul, oh God, that I think you want to do? And reading this book. And then I read this. Black is truly beautiful, but not Beautiful as a God. As a God, it is too small. Afrocentrism is truly magnificent, but it is not magnificent as an absolute. As an absolute, it will infect us with the kind of bigotry we've struggled against in others for centuries. Whenever we seek to understand our situation without the transcendent reference point of the Word of God, we fail to find the answer to our crisis. The white man's religion has failed us, namely Christianityism, and the Arab ethnic religion has failed us and will fail us again. Yes, the trumpet is sounding to the black community in these words. We need a bigger vision than black is beautiful. I hear that. We need a bigger vision than Afrocentrism. I hear that. We need a transcendent reference point. We need the supremacy of God, the centrality of God, the Word of God. And I'm a white man listening into this. I'm listening. On the porch in Asheville, North Carolina. And finding everything in me crying Amen, not for the black community. But for my own puny God, market-driven, materialistic, middle-class, comfort-seeking, truth-compromising, wishy-washy, white evangelical American church. That's what I'm hearing. I had to ask there on the porch... Does not the burning of my heart, as I read, beckon me to call this man? On the telephone. And ask him, would you come help me do this? I think what you're doing in this book is what I'm groping to do. And I've never read anything like this before. 
help me. And he lit up. And I can't believe he's just sitting there. He's sitting there. He's here. And so I am so thankful for what God did. My desiring God folks were on my case for months saying, get us a speaker. Get us a speaker. We've got a conference to put on here. I said, I don't know yet. I don't know what God's doing yet. I can't figure this out. And he gave me that porch and that book and this man and what measures of vision I now see. So let's move to biblical foundations. I want to put some Bible underneath God-centeredness, God's supremacy. I want to put biblical fire in the furnace that might help forge the link. We're not going to forge this link in our own power. We're going to forge this link with our own thinking and our creativity and our language creation, our little cultural, anthropological stuff. If a link is going to be forged between these links of sovereignty of God and God-centered thinking over here and the soul dynamic and the black experience in America over here and really... The sovereignty of God over here, the soul dynamic over here, and a deeply God-centered tradition of white evangelicalism over here, which has almost vanished off the face of the earth. Then we need some Bible. The Word of God will do it, not us. So let me try to guide you in this. Here's where I'm going. First, we're going to talk about God's God-centeredness in His providence over all of history. Second, God's God-centeredness in the love of God for us. Third, God's God-centeredness in the cross of Jesus. And fourth, God's God-centeredness in our suffering with Jesus. And at every point... I hope I can make plain that God's God-centeredness is the best news in all the world. Number one, the God-centeredness of God in His providence over history. The beginning of providence is creation. If you can know why God created, you probably know why He rules what He created. Here's why He created. Isaiah 43, 6. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. God created... You and everybody and everything and all galaxies to display His glory. Creation is radically God-centered in its purpose and design. Now, at this point, we could do a logic thing. And here the seas would part, wouldn't they? Or the stems would divide. We could do a logic thing. Systems builders, and I thank God for certain ones of them, might do a logic thing here. And it would be valid. I think it might be better here just to read the answer from the Bible as to what the purpose of God in providence is rather than inferring with deductive logic from creation to providence. 
That'd be very easy to do, to infer logically from the purpose of creation to the purpose of providence. And a lot of people preach that way. You know what? Don't preach that way. Don't preach that way. Whether you're in a black church or a white church, show the people from the Bible the two points. And then afterwards, you can show them there's a logical connection if you want to and if it's helpful. But don't draw out point after point from logical deductions leaving the Bible on the table. It will be true, probably, if you're a good logician, since God's not a God of confusion. But it won't have any power. And it will be fragile in their minds. They can't remember the logic, but they can point to Bible verses. That's not in the manuscript. That's a little homiletical. So don't do the logic thing. Just do this. Go to Ephesians chapter 1 and read the answer. Verse 11. He works all things... Now, this is providence. He works all things according to the counsel of His will. Why? So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. Be. You exist and everything is done in your life. Like Sam was saying, that you might be to his glory. Now, this is good news to God-centered people who delight in making much of God and seeing God made much of in the world. But this is very disappointing news to man-centered white and black communities which are controlled by white supremacy and the beauty of blackness. And the key word there is controlled. They're not happy with this theology. Sounds just a little bit different, and I'm not sure I want to put that jacket on. God doesn't rule the world To make us central, not white, not black, not brown, not human. He doesn't rule the world to make human beings of any color central. We are not absolute. God is absolute. We're not ultimate. God is ultimate. He's central. Has been, is now, always will be. And it occurs to me, it occurred to me when I was writing this down, that may sound white. I wonder if that sounds white. I don't know if that sounds white. But that may sound white. And then I thought, if that sounds white, let's let Carl Ellis do it to jazz. Yes. <laughs> Chapter 12. Chapter 12. Let's let Carl Ellis do that white sentence that I just spouted to jazz. Now, those of us who've been to school, we know that underneath this jazz is Cornelius Van Til. We can hear it. He's the theme. And Carl is just improvising on the piano. Maybe the saxophone. I don't know. I've got a bias there, as a few people know. 
All right, here he goes. I'll do my best. You do it later. God's existence is the most obvious and fundamental thing in the human experience. This is a quote. I'm quoting now from Carl Ellis. There can be no is without God's is. And since is is, God is. Because God is is. The only way anyone can declare that God ain't is to declare is ain't. And if is ain't, there never was a God ain't declaration to be there in the first place. Without God, even the atheist could not say God ain't. He would not be there to say it. You, you, you don't have to play it on classical music. But you got to play it. Play it on your own instrument, brothers. Play it on your own instrument, but play it. That is the supremacy of God, the centrality of God, the glory of God. God's God-centeredness is it. I'm picking up this theme from chapter 12 in the book because he says that black preaching is to white preaching the way jazz is to classical music. Classical music has a, a, a composer and a score and the player follows the score. And uh, jazz has a theme, it has a root, it has a content, but it's all built around a soul who improvises, gives life to that theme freely as he does. You know, brothers, black and white, you ought to do some of both. You know why? You know why? Because there are more white people longing for the soul of jazz preaching than you ever dreamed. And there are more black people longing for the substance of classical preaching than you ever dreamed. You ought to do a little of both. Man is not at the top. Man is not at the bottom. Man is not at the center. God is, and he means to be, and I dream, brothers, of standing with him, with you. Second, the God-centeredness of God in loving his people. Sometimes people who are saturated with the centrality of man hear me talk about the God-centeredness of God, and they don't feel it as love. They don't feel loved. When I say God exists for the glory of God, God created for the glory of God, God rules all things for the glory of God. People hear that, white and black, and they, they say, where's love? Well, in the last year, the Lord has put on me a text that I've used a half a dozen times now in various settings. I'm going to read it to you. John 11, 1 to 6, to explain where love is in that understanding. It's a story. 
John 11, 1 to 6. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Martha and her sister Mary. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love, mark that word love, is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death, for it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha. Mark that word love. And her sister and Lazarus. The next word is incomprehensible to a man-centered reader. The next word is so or therefore. Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus. Therefore, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer where he was. Now I can understand him staying there well, what's this therefore? Therefore. He loved Martha grieving. He loved Lazarus dying. He loved Mary weeping. And when he heard that he's on the brink of death sick, therefore, because he loved them all, he stayed and let him die. Strange logic. So notice three things. He chose to let Lazarus die. That's manifestly the intent of this passage. He chose to let Lazarus die. Second thing to observe. He was motivated by a passion for the glory of God. Verse 4. This illness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through Him. You've got the glory of the Father and the glory of the Son, and Jesus is bent on seeing the Son and the Father glorified in this moment in their experience. And the third thing to observe is His motivation is love. When I saw that about a year ago, I don't know how I'd missed it all these years, It was amazing to me. Because what he's saying is, love is not the removal of pain. It's not the withholding of grief. It's not the alleviating of trouble and trial. Love is God doing whatever he has to do To help you see and savor the glory of God. And until you feel loved when God does what He has to do, not to make much of you, but to free you to enjoy making much of Him, you'll never know what it is to be loved by God. 
And most people in America, and I mean white evangelical America, I don't know the black community, how they're going to respond to this, because I haven't preached there much, although i got two exciting conferences to go to these coming years. I'll find out now how they respond. But I know how people respond to in the white community to this, and that is very few white evangelicals feel loved unless you make much of them. We have a whole theology we built. And the black community is buying it, lock, stock, and barrel, called self-esteem. you got other names for it. Play it on a different instrument. But you bought it. Parts of you, anyway. We are infected, black and white, with me-ism or man-centeredness, which can only feel loved when you make much of me. Tell me I am somebody or something great, and then I'll feel loved. But that is not what love is. Love is when I come to you and I die for you. I die for you. I lay down my life for you so that you might be freed from bondage to mirrors and enjoy making much of God forever. That is the platform where we might meet each other in a way perhaps we've never met before. There might be a link forged in that fire of God's God-centeredness and love's God-centeredness that has never been forged before. Oh, at least I dream about it. I dream about it. Thirdly, thirdly, the God-centeredness of God in the suffering and death of Jesus. Oh, the cross. Oh, the cross. Is there anything more beautiful, more precious than the cross? God forbid that we here at Bethlehem Conference for Pastors should glory in anything except the cross of the Lord Jesus. Why did He die? Why did He die? He died for our sins. The Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. God shows His love to us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. He died for us. He bore our sins in His body on the tree. But everybody in this room probably knows there was something deeper. Had there not been something deeper, the cross would not have been necessary. Right? The only reason the love of God was expressed in the cross of the Son of God is because of the majesty of the righteousness of God. He passed over former sins and He looked thereby unjust and unrighteous by sweeping under the rug of the universe God belittling actions and attitudes. He is not a God who sweeps God-belittling actions and attitudes under the rug. He slays them, either in us, in hell, or in Jesus, on the cross. And therefore, the deepest reason of the cross is this interwoven passion of God that He be both just and justifier of those who have faith alone in Jesus. 
And so the God-centeredness of the cross screams out from Romans 3.25. He put Him forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show that He is righteous because He had passed over former sins. So the cross, as precious as it is in delivering us, is a mighty statement of God's God-centeredness. So, brothers, how do you preach it? Or better, how do you pray it? Do you say, Psalm 25:11, For thy name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Do you understand those words? For thy name's sake, pardon my guilt. That's an Old Testament statement of, in Jesus' name, pardon my guilt. For his sake, not mine. He's got the blood. He's got the righteousness. I got nothing. You deal with me, I'm a goner. Deal with me for his sake. Deal with me for His sake. Accept me for His sake. Forgive me for His sake. Love me for His sake. Accept me for His sake. Draw me in for His sake. Magnify Him in all the good you do to me. Let Him get the glory and I'll just get the help. I'll be the welfare case here. You do it with Him. Deal with Him. The cross is radically God-centered. And oh, how we white evangelicals err when we make it into an echo of our own excellence. Mm. Isaiah 43:25. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my namesake. I will not remember your sins. Are you happy to be forgiven? If you're happy to be forgiven, who gets the glory for your being forgiven? God gets the glory. And if He bought you with the cross, the cross is to magnify the glory of His righteousness in saving sinners like us. That's number three. Number four and finally. The God-centeredness of God in our suffering and death with Jesus in a world of sin and pain. That was his suffering, now our suffering. What does the pain of the black experience in America mean? What does the pain of the white Christian martyrs in the reign of Bloody Mary mean? What does the suffering and death of thousands of Christians in China mean? None of these things took the all-seeing, all-knowing, risen, sovereign Christ off guard. In fact, I was stunned again in reading Matthew 10 just a few days ago by this thought. Let me read it and then I'll give you the thought. Here's the word of Jesus about that suffering. This is verse 16 to 25 with parts left out. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep 
in the midst of wolves. That's not good news. But he's loving, so it must be goodness. Pardon the logic. No, don't pardon the logic. Embrace the logic. They will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. It's not taking Jesus off guard. Brother will deliver up brother to death. I got four sons. It's not hard for me to imagine this. And to and to feel when it happens. I didn't mean it as funny. I see how you took it. But what I mean is it would be the most horrible thing I can imagine to see my son, Benjamin. Wrapped on Karsten and be happy that he's killed. Nothing would break my heart like that could break my heart. And Jesus says, it's going to happen. So, brothers, when it happens, are you going to get in Jesus' face about it or say, my Jesus is a truth teller? That's what hit me. The very moment that is calling my faith most deeply into question is vindicating His Word. It takes your breath away to think what these predictions mean. Keep reading. And father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. A disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? He saw it all. He predicted it all. Oh, how strange we are that when it happens to us, we fault him. Had we read him? Why aren't we faulting Him now? Fault Him now, brothers. Fault Him now if you're going to fault Him. Because it's coming. Why not fault Him now? Blame Him now. You know why? You don't believe His Word. Or you're not going to fault Him then either. Don't fault your Jesus when He... His word comes true. It's got to happen to somebody. Some Christians got to have a betrayer or this text falls. Are you willing to bear it? Are you going to pass it off to your neighbor? Paul picked it up like this. 2 Timothy 3. Indeed, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Or Acts 14.22 Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. James 1.2 Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. 
Peter, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Now, what does all this have to do with the supremacy, centrality, sovereignty of God? Paul gives the answer in 2 Corinthians 12. Listen. After receiving an indescribable vision of the Lord, which he could not speak, God ordained by the hand of Satan that Paul be given a thorn in the flesh. I have no idea what it was and won't speculate. I just know it was painful and he wanted to get rid of it. So he prayed three times that God would take it away. It says, this is verse 7, To keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. That's God's design, not Satan's design. Satan would be very happy if Paul exalted himself. Therefore, the design here is God's through Satan. So he pleaded three times, take it away. Jesus, please take it away. Jesus, please take it away. It hurts. Take it away, Jesus. Please take it away. And the answer comes back, no, no, no. And then this utterly unsatisfying explanation if you are man-centered. Test yourself, brothers. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. To which most Americans would respond, to hell, to hell with your stinking power, it hurts! Take it away. What's all this Christ-centered stuff? Magnify your power. It hurts. Take it away. How are we doing? How are you doing in your pain, brother? One of you came up to me and had just been diagnosed with thyroid cancer on Sunday and we prayed together. They looked like they were doing pretty good. Doing pretty good. That's all over this room. Children, wives, marriages, jobs, churches. The pain in this room is huge. How are we doing? If Jesus comes to you and says, no. But, but in my no, you know what I'm going to do for you? I'm going to make myself look really good. Is that a a help? This is serious. This is serious. Is that a help? If you can't say yes, you'll never know what it is to be loved by Jesus. That's an overstatement. Never is the wrong word there. You don't yet fully know what it is to be loved by Jesus. Be careful. Your suffering is about the glory of Jesus. That's all I know to say. Your suffering is about the glory of Jesus. If you'll have it, that is, if you could get a heart so changed, so eager to enjoy making much of Him rather than being made much of, then if He tells you, My highest and deepest purpose for you in your pain is to make my power look great. You would say, yes! 
That would make my day. And until you can say that, I don't know what you're going to do with the Jesus of the Bible. So I close. Brothers, is this not our aim? How did Paul respond? Nine, verse nine. Therefore, I will exult all the more gladly in my weaknesses, my calamities, my pain, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me and be displayed through me and be made much of in me. I exist to make much of Jesus and enjoy magnifying Him, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Isn't this our aim, brothers? Isn't this our passion to become so God-centered, so Christ-exalting, so consumed with a passion for the supremacy of God that anything that will show Him to be the supreme treasure of our lives. Better than health, better than wealth, better than family, better than success, better than fame. Any pain, any trial, any trouble, any loss, any grief, anything. Let it come if He will just be made magnificent in my heart and through me in the hearts of as many people, white and black as possible, drawing us together into one great river of love that flows through the valley of pain and death so that everyone who drinks from it will not feel energy to make much of themselves and their ethnicity, but will feel a miracle energy to make much of God. To enjoy making much of God forever. So I call you, brothers. I don't know what it's going to cost us. I just know that I long to see God take a new vision of sovereignty, centrality, supremacy, played on whatever music. And the old white tradition with all of its imperfections and the deep old soul dynamic and black experience with all its imperfections and put those things together in a way that perhaps none of us can right now fully articulate or fully dream. Let's pray. So, Father in heaven... That's the best I can do to say what I am longing toward, praying toward, dreaming toward tonight. And I pray that this note, in as much as it has some of you in it, will be played on in this conference. And that you will do exceedingly abundantly beyond what any of us asks or thinks for the glory of our King. Jesus, in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now, I did not leave the 30 minutes for Q&A that I was supposed to, but I left 10. And there are microphones in the aisles. This is the way we do it. So uh, we'll take 10 minutes, and anybody who wants to can go to any mic and uh, ask a question, and I'll just say I don't know if I don't know. Manny.
what you said was great. However, how do we get it done? How how are we going to do it in a practical way to really get dirty and pitch our tent with the blacks in the city and rescue them from the jails? Because be, before that we can say that we love them or that we're going to teach about this great theology, we need to begin to love them where they are. Well, one answer to that would be every pastor in this church start a koinonia house and talk to Manny Mill about how to do it. And uh, I hope, Manny, that in the other talks and around the tables and over the bookstalls and in the halls and in the prayer meetings and everywhere else, the spin-off of this talk will be action. I hope so. That wasn't my charge tonight, but there will be action, God willing. Go ahead, brother. Why is it that, and this goes beyond race because it's a human condition that comes from Adam, why don't we like to hear that we're to be God-centered? Why is it Adam doesn't like to hear I'm supposed to be God-centered other than the general answer of original sin. And how do you work that out pastorally when you are teaching this to someone and they put the hand up and say, I, I can't even feel love unless it's me-centered? Yeah. Well, here's my answer to the why question. And there's more than one way to play the instrument on the answer, and there's more than one answer. But the one that comes to my mind, and I'll speak it, is Second Corinthians 4, 4. The reason we love to be made much of and do not find it hopeful or satisfying or attractive to have someone challenge us with God's God-centeredness and our finding our satisfaction in Him is because the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. People do not see the light of the glory of God. If you are in a room and there is no sun shining and there's a little light in the corner and you're trying to read and somebody says to you, there's a sun shining outside and you've never seen the sun, you will want this light in the corner. That's all you know is the light in the corner. I want that light. Don't turn that light off. Because that's what the message sounds like. Going to turn my light off. Going to turn my lust light off. Going to turn my money light off. Going to turn my success light off. And they don't have any spiritual eyes to see the sun yet. So I think that's the basic reason for why it does not sound like good news to people. They're blind. So pastorally, my job is first to pray that the God of this age would be defeated, that the eyes of the blind would be opened, that they would see that they're making mud pies in the slums when he promises a holiday at the sea, and that Christ would shine forth out of heaven through his word with such irresistible glory that they would be drawn into him, and then it makes total sense. It's a spiritual reality. Preaching is the most impossible task in the world. Because you're after the removal of blindness. And so, pastorally, I devote my whole life to trying to paint 
the sovereignty of God, the beauty of God, the centrality of God, the supremacy of God, the glory of Christ, the glory of the cross, the glory of obedience in colors that are so lavish, the Holy Spirit might be pleased to do what He was sent to do, and that is glorify the Son by opening the eyes of the, the blind. What role, in your view, can our educational institutions play in this country in terms of um, meeting the needs that you described tonight, both in the black community and in the white community? Yeah. My angle on this, I am not a very effective activist. And I grieve over that. I could give you documentation of failures. And therefore, when I think, what would I do if I were a president? What would I do if I were a vice president or a dean or a faculty member or a pastor for students or whatever? I think in terms of top-down vision. So that if you, or if you're talking a white school, if that president or that dean gets a passion in his bones and begins to trumpet that passion. See, I think we jump to immediate practical conclusion. Let's get some faculty in here who are color. And, and let's get students who are color. And, and we try to do these things. So like Manny says, we've got to do some things. But I have done what I can do tonight and what I think really needs to be done a lot of in white churches and white schools and black schools is people putting, doing that book, doing that book powerfully, putting vision up there of a great, grand, God-centered theology so that students hear something more than guilt-producing, go out and find somebody to come in here and make this place look a little more colorful. That is so quick. That is so small. That is so... It's just... There's got to be some substance to this thing. That's, that's this weekend. I mean, that's this conference. If I'm wrong, then you go home and do another thing. But my feel on this thing is there's got no substance to the movement. It's got to have deep roots. It's got to have high vision. It's got to have a great God, a great Christ, so that all the punching we're going to do with each other here. We're going to punch each other here. There's going to be some bruises and wounds here will not knock us down because there's this magnificent, central, glorious, great, common vision. So, I think I would say to every Bible school president and every Bible school dean, get a vision. Get a, a first, it's, it's first a theological vision. I've been working on the theology for who knows how many years. I'm just starting to work on how the the thing integrates, how the thing comes together, how the little the little magnet stick comes down and gets all those thousand filing pieces into one coherent thing here. So that that's my general answer. It's probably utterly inadequate, but my gut feeling is you are unbelievably crucially poised where you are to do something significant, both for your school and if you must hobnob with lots of presidents, I would guess, and those sorts of people, you give the talk. You write the book. You just get get a big vision before them. And if uh, if that's not it, then I got to go to school with you.